0: Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of the Hitman Chronicles. This is your host, the original Great Rob Silver, and today we have another loaded program. The first segment will be in a, a complete rundown of the entire Day of Reckoning card out in Saudi Arabia. You had eight fights total. Um, uh, I'm going to review at least four or five of them. Um, I'm not sure. I'm look I'm gonna watch each fight. Cause right now I'm recording the first part of this podcast right after the opening bout ended, Frank Sanchez versus Junior Fa. Um, I think I'm gonna do the Gio Pattaya fight. Uh definitely gonna review the Wilder and Joshua fights. And oh definitely uh uh, uh Dmitry and Fat Man um Fat Man uh Big Baby Miller versus Daniel Dubois. So we'll be looking at six of the the eight fights tonight. So, wow, a very stacked lineup. Uh, So uh, let's begin. Oh, that's the first segment. Second segment is our weekly Q&A. For those of you who want me to answer your questions on this podcast, and it doesn't have to be about boxing. It could be about anything else, anything. If I decide that it's appropriate, I will answer the question. And the final segment will be my historical overview of the recently elected to the International Boxing Hall of Fame former two-time heavyweight champion of the world, Michael Mora. So now on, let's talk about the, the first fight here, Frank Sanchez versus Junior Fah here on December 26, 2023 from Saudi Arabia. The fight ended about ooh, 15 minutes ago. As I begin this recording, Frank Sanchez is a very good fighter, um, in my opinion. And people could scoff at me. They could criticize me before they want to. I believe PBC held him back. And now that he's fighting overseas and uh, fought in Saudi Arabia today, I think Frank Sanchez can be a possible future world champion. He was held back at PBC. I wish he could have fought a Deontay Wilder. I wish he could have fought an Andy Ruiz. The only fighter that Frank Sanchez has really fought that's real good in his career is Effia Jagba, and he outboxed Effia Jagba brilliantly over 10 rounds, and Effia Jagba, since his loss to Frank Sanchez, has become an even better fighter. It's one of the examples of a fighter becoming better after a loss. I would love to see Frank Sanchez... Oh, before I talk about where I let's talk about the fight real quick. First five rounds, Frank Sanchez controlled the action with his beautiful left jab. Sanchez has one of the best jabs in the division today. Um, and then in the sixth round, he landed right behind that left jab, a spectacular right cross that dropped Junior Fah. Frank Sanchez has a textbook right cross. I love his fundamentals. He has a beautiful left jab, and when connected perfectly. He lands that right cross right behind it and he's a threat against anybody in the heavyweight division. He's Yes, he would he be an underdog against Wilder Fury and Usyk most definitely, but he has a shot against all three because of that fundamentally very good to great left jab and that right cross, that right cross that is thrown textbook perfect. In the seventh round, he dropped far twice with spectacular right crosses. Finally, referee stopped the fight. Seventh round stoppage for Frank Sanchez. Now, I want him to I want him to fight the guy that's in the ring right now, of uh, Philip Herkovich. I would love to see him fight. Herkovich, I would love to see him fight either the winner or the loser of Daniel Dubois versus Big Baby Miller. I would love to see him fight. Oh, a rematch with Effie Ajakba. Oh, how about the other big baby? Uh, Jared Anderson. I want to see Frank Santos fight real good contenders, real good fighters. He's 31 years old. Yes, for today's boxing and heavyweight division, that's young. But he's been neutered too long. He's been held back too long. I need to see him step up because he's got talent. He's got real talent. And he's not learning anything fighting B fighters, C fighters. The only decent fighter, well, not these, the only real good fighter he's beaten so far in his career is Effie Ajagba. I want him to see, I want to see him fight the Daniel Dubois, the Jarrell uh, Millers. Uh, Jarrell Millers really not that good of a fighter, but we'll talk about that later on when we review that fight. That that fight has yet to happen as in real time as I record. But nevertheless, Miller, Dubois, Herkovich, um, Big Baby Anderson. Put him in the ring with one of these guys. All rematch with Fia Jogba. I don't want to see Frank Sanchez fight another stiff. And hopefully, now that uh, he seems to be fighting in Saudi Arabia, I don't know if he's still a PBC fighter. I believe he's still associated with Lou, Lou DiBella. We need him to step up. No more tomato cans that PBC fed him over and over and over again. Now on to the next fight that we'll talk about. Wow, Jai Opatia with a late knockout of the year candidate. Uh, I could have told you this was a one-sided match. Jai Opatia is the single best cruiserweight in the world. And once again, the criminal cartel, alphabet soup sanctioning bodies, pull a fast one. They forced him to vacate the title. this is the second time in the last four months in which the IBF basically took away a title from a fighter who was the deserving champion that was is the best fighter in the division. They took away the IBF title a few months ago from Terrence Crawford, and now Jai Apatia had to relinquish his IBF title, but you know what? It doesn't matter. He's the best cruiserweight in the world, and El Azoro, the man he fought today at the Tonight, at the Day of Reckoning, not on Apataya's level, Apataya got a nice payday to decapitate this dude in one round. The The opening two and a half minutes saw Apataya control with his beautiful right jab. He's got one of the best soft paw jabs in the sport. Um, Bam Rodriguez is the only one i say definitely has a better right jab than Jai Apataya. And then late in the round, with less than 10 seconds left in the round, he landed a spectacular left cross that bounced Zorro's neck off the ropes. And he was out. Referee didn't even have to bother to count. First round knockout for Jai Opatia. And now, what do we want to see from Jai Opatia? I mean, to me, if he wants to continue at cruiserweight, and he should because I don't think he's big enough to deal with the big boys at heavyweight. So... Let's keep him at cruiserweight. And I would love to see him fight Lawrence O'Coley. I would love to see him fight Chris Billum-Smith. One of those two guys. Go after those guys. Um, I believe he beats both of them. But they would be very good competitive fights. Because in my opinion, the three best cruiserweights in the world are Opatia 1. Billum-Smith 2 and O'Coley 3. I got to give Billum-Smith second because he beat O'Coley to win... His Alphabet Soup Criminal Cartel uh, Cruiserweight Championship. I really want to see Opetaya fight super fights at Cruiserweight. Well, I mean, the best you could do is Billum Smith or O'Coley. Have a few fights at Cruiserweight and then go up to heavyweight and see what happens. We'll see. But Opetaya is a beautiful boxer. Everything off that right jab. And he's got a spectacular left cross. The future is is bright for Jai Opataya, Ladies and gentlemen, what a pathetic fucking uh, performance put on by that big fat Shamu the whale, Goodyear blimp fucking big baby Jarrell Miller. Get that motherfucker the fuck out of here. He's done, stick a fork in him. Kudos to Daniel Dubois, he stuck to the game plan. He used his very good left jab to keep that fat fuck off of him. He went to the body. Fat boy didn't go to the body. And he dominated this fight. And I don't know what the fucking. The bozos. The four man. Uh, uh, the four man talk show. I don't know what that uh, format. I don't know what they were looking at. Oh Jarrell Miller could wear him down. Jarrell Miller is shot. He has no defense whatsoever. Remember ladies and gentlemen. Before he got caught Twice. With using steroids. He used to throw punches in bunches. 70 to 80 punches per round. In this fight, he was just walking. Taking shots. He was doing a rope-a-dope. Sitting up. And Daniel Dubois dominated behind that jab. Um, I was worried though after the first round. Dubois looked very tired. In the corner after the first round. Because to me, he had unnecessary movement. He was, he was moving too much. But eventually... By the fifth round, he didn't move as much, and he stayed in the pocket, and he landed that jab, and he only moved to avoid the wild, ineffective shots by Fatboy. Fatboy needs to retire. He took a brutal beating. I gave Fatboy one round, and that was the fourth round because he landed his best power shots of that round. But beginning with round five, Dubois went back to using that jab, and he was landing beautiful Body shots. Wearing down that fat fuck. He was landing that right uppercut at will. The biggest problem I had with Dubois and, he's, Dubois. and he's going to have to get rid of this problem. He was leading with his head too much. And he almost got a point deducted. He got two warnings. It wouldn't have mattered in this fight. Because he was winning every second of every round. Except the fourth round. Round 8 and round 9. He was hitting Miller at will. Jarrell. Big Baby Miller, who claimed he was going to wear down uh, Dubois, that Dubois was going to be sucking air at the end of the fight. No, that big Goodyear blimp was completely exhausted. And in the eighth and ninth round, he took one right hand after another. And finally, in the tenth round, late in the tenth round, he was staggered with a right uppercut, left hook. The ropes held him up from going down. He put his hands down, and he, he was trying. He was trying to fake the funk. In order to get to the end of the round, but Dubois jumped on him, landed rights and lefts, right crosses, left hooks. Finally, the referee, Michael Alexander, stopped the fight with eight seconds left. Big comeback win for Dubois. Now, I don't think Dubois will ever be top of the food chain in the heavyweight division, but I think he is an excellent opponent for the Phillip Herkovich's and Frank Sanchez of the world and Daniel Dubois back in the mix he's back in the mix while fat boy Miller needs to get the fuck out of here he's done stick a fork in his fat ass it's a wrap for him kudos to Daniel Dubois he didn't listen to the naysayers who thought that he had no shot against big baby Miller I thought it was a 50-50 fight but after the fifth round, I was like, Miller's got nothing. All he did was walk into shot after shot after shot. 330 plus pounds. Man, get that fat fuck the fuck out of here. Goodbye, Fat Boy Miller. And I hate to say this because he's a fellow New Yorker like myself. But uh, I don't know what you could do, Fat Boy Miller. Get your CDL license, I guess. Because boxing... Ain't it, cause you ain't beating the Frank Sanchez's and the Philip Herkovich's. You you can't even beat Andy Ruiz. If you fought Chris Ariola tomorrow, Chris Ariola will put you in the hospital. Bye bye. It's about time that Dimitri Bavall fight Arthur Better Biv. Let's let's get all these other lightweights out of the way. Just just forget about putting Bavall in the ring with anybody else. I know Better B has a fight coming up soon. But you know what? There's only two light heavyweights in the world right now that matter. And that's Arthur Bedebiev and Dimitri Boval. Once again, Boval with a dominating virtuoso performance tonight against Lyndon Arthur. Lyndon Arthur had no shot at all. Um, These fucking DAZN announcers are horrible. They're fucking horrible. Chris Mannix. Oh, well, you know, uh, 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 Lyndon Arthur has the IBO title. I know it's not uh a prestigious title, but you know what? Oh, Vladimir Klitschko held that title. Uh, uh, shut the fuck up. That title's a trash title. That title's a bogus title. That title and $2.90 will get you on the New York City subway. Get that bullshit the fuck out of here, all right? These zone announcers are horrible. They've got four guys calling a fight Talking over at the same time, these guys give you no real commentary. They don't know the sport. Chris Mannix didn't start watching boxing until his mid-20s. He admitted that. How are you making big money being a color commentator on a sport you have no knowledge of? Sergio Moron is a moron. Todd Grisham used to be a pro wrestling WWE announcer. Get these goofballs the hell out of here. Ladies and gentlemen, your your best to watch the fight on, on mute or go get an international broadcast. Get it in Russian or French. One of those languages where you can, hell, Chinese, Japanese, get one of those feeds. That way you don't have to hear the nonsense spewing out of Chris Mannix. Sergio Moron, and Todd Gruesome. Get the hell out of here. Anyway, the IBO title. Oh, well, you know, he could add that to his collection. What? Nobody wants that title. The only two light heavyweights that matter on the planet are Arta Beterbiev and Dmitry Boval. We have to get this fight done this year. There is nothing left for either fighter to prove at 175. ought to be better. Biev and Dmitry Bavol. They should only face each other. Uh, hopefully after better Biev's next fight, this fight will finally be put together. Oh, another nonsense. Bit of nonsense that this uh, announcer crew mentioned. Oh, Bavol hasn't had a knockout in six years. He should go out there and, and, and show the world that he could still knock people out. You don't don't. Please. Baval doesn't lose rounds. Him not him not knocking people out didn't matter when he completely dominated and gave Canelo Alvarez uh the zone's favorite fighter a boxing lesson in a masterpiece. Doesn't matter if you knock out the fighters. Dimitri Baval has proven in his fight against Lyndon Arthur is as fresh in the 12th round as he was in the first round. And those body shots that dropped Arthur in the 11th round, two beautiful left hooks that set up that, to the body that set up that knockdown. And in the 12th round, he batted Arthur at the beginning and at the end to win a virtuoso shutout. I want to see Boval versus Better BF because the only light heavyweight that could beat Better BF right now is Baval. The only light heavyweight that could beat Baval today is Better BF. Okay, now on to the heavyweights. This was the best I've seen Anthony Joshua fight since before he lost his title the first time to Andy Ruiz. This is the Anthony Joshua that I saw against Dominic Brazil, against uh, Dylan White, against uh, Charles Martin, um, against... Vladimir Klitschko. This is the Anthony Joshua that I thought was going to become an all-time great heavyweight champion. And it's still not too late. Um, That jab was working beautifully today for the first time in several fights. That right cross, he was throwing beautifully. First four rounds, he boxed Valine's ears off. Otto Valine was never in his fight. He looked like he was trying to survive. Then... Fifth round, a beautiful right cross, left hook combination by Joshua, staggered Valine, And it was batting practice for the rest of the round. Valine took such a brutal beating in that fifth round that they didn't even bother for him to come out for the sixth round. So a fifth round stoppage for Anthony Joshua. Anthony Joshua right now is at a crossroads in his career. Right now, it's all about his legacy. He's had a very good career. He's made a boatload of money. Um, And you know what? I know a lot of people criticize him, but Anthony Joshua is a gentleman. Uh, he's a real nice guy, soft-spoken, doesn't say anything derogatory about people. Um, he's proud of who he is, of his heritage, you know. Anthony Joshua is the type of athlete I love. Humble. And while flawed in his career because of the three losses, the two to Usyk and the one to Anthony Ruiz, he still has tremendous natural ability. And he, his right hand is a weapon in whoever he fights, whether it's Deontay Wilder, whether it's Tyson Fury. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, Usyk won those two fights against Joshua but he got caught with a lot of right hands. Joshua hurt him a few times. It wasn't easy for Usyk. The first fight, I had it a draw. Second fight, I had Usyk winning because late down, down the stretch, Joshua faded. Anthony Joshua is a very good fighter. All right, let's stop the disrespect. And I'm hoping that 2024, Joshua win or lose. Proves to the world that A, he has heart. B, he is very talented. And C, that he is still dangerous in the heavyweight division. I saved the semi-main event for the final segment of this fight recap. Ladies and gentlemen, the Hitman Chronicles Fighter of the Week is Joseph Parker. I was totally wrong on my prediction I predicted, though, 11 years ago, 10 years ago, a decade ago, 2013, I predicted that the next three great heavyweights would be Anthony Joshua, Deontay Wilder, and Joseph Parker. Joseph Parker, up until tonight, had fallen short. Yes, he won the WB heavyweight title, but he lost in a fight in which he didn't step up against Anthony Joshua. He lost his version of the title to Joshua. Then he got outworked by Dillian White and outworked by Joe Joyce. And I thought after the loss to Joe Joyce that Parker's career was over. No. He resurrected his career tonight with a dominating performance over Deontay Wilder. Deontay Wilder needs to retire. He's shot. Now, if they still want to go ahead and fight Anthony Joshua March 9th, I think they signed the deal. Uh, go ahead and do it. Get that one last payday. But Deontay Wilder is shot. I know you. there's a lot of Deontay Wilder fans out there that listen to my podcast. He's done. Stick a fork in him. He fought the first half of the fight like he was trying to beat Shakur Stevenson. He was running. He was uh, missing Wally with his jab. And Joseph Parker was out jabbing him and out him with that right hand. And then in the eighth round. He staggered Wilder. What a spectacular right cross. Wilder was hurt. And Wilder in the ninth and tenth and eleventh round kept getting hit by that overhand right cross. I gave Wilder three rounds. Round two, round three, and round twelve because in round twelve he was desperate and Parker wisely was fighting smart enough not to get caught with anything crazy. But rounds one... And 4-11 Parker out-jabbed a Wilder who gave you what my father calls unnecessary movement. He's moving around. Why? Why are you moving around? Deontay Wilder's at his best when he's standing in the pocket and... Feigning with the left jab, or pulling with that left jab, and then landing that right over the top. Instead, he moved and moved and moved. And Parker kept cutting off the ring. Parker jabbed to the body. Parker overhand right cross. Over and over again. Deontay Wilder's done, ladies and gentlemen. He's done. I'm sorry to admit it. I love Deontay Wilder. Deontay Wilder has a beautiful wife, beautiful children. Go retire. You've made a lot of money. But if you can still get that fight with Joshua, go ahead and take it. But as far as being a heavyweight champion of the world, it ain't never going to happen again for Deontay Wilder. He's 38 years old. His legs are shot. Can he beat the B fighters of the world? Yes, but he can no longer beat the A fighters. All you guys out there, I was wrong. You guys have to come to terms. He's done. Stick a fork in him. Joseph Parker, with possibly the upset of the year, we'll talk about that next week on the uh, Hitman Chronicles uh, Fight Awards, Boxing Awards for 2023. But Joseph Parker's going to win at least one, if not two, awards next week. Think about it, ladies and gentlemen. He fought a great fight. He outfought a guy whose skills declined. But, man, I'm so glad that Joseph Parker finally showed... uh, Showed me to be, uh, that I was looking at the, when I first saw Joseph Parker a decade ago, I thought I was I was seeing a young prospect who was going to be a special fighter. He outboxed Andy Ruiz. It was beautiful boxing that he did. It was a close fight, but he stayed away from Ruiz's power and he outjab Ruiz. Against Joshua, Joshua outjabbed uh, Parker and he lost a decision in which Parker fought tentatively tentatively tentatively. Tentatively. Um and then Parker was outworked, out hustled, outpunched by dillian White and Joe Joyce. I thought it was over for him. No, but I'll tell you who it's over for now. Deontay Wilder is done. Ladies and gentlemen, if I had a vote, I'd vote Deontay Wilder into the International Boxing Hall of Fame. It's time for Deontay to call it a rap. Unless he gets unless he can get that fight with with Anthony Joshua in March if that fight is still on the table i take it if I was Deontay Wilder because that's a lot of money but he will never ever be heavyweight champion of the world again and if I was Joseph Parker I wouldn't fight again I'd wait until Usyk fought Fury and I'd fight the winner of that fight I'd, I'd tell Eddie Hearn make that fight do whatever you can Joseph Parker deserves the winner of Fury versus Usyk. Nobody else. The fighter of the week. The Hitman Chronicles fighter of the week. Joseph Parker. Well done, baby. Deontay Wilder, I still love you, but baby, it's time to call it a career. And now on to the Ask Rob Silver question and answer session of the podcast. For those who want your questions answered, and it could be on anything other than boxing. I mean, the questions I get are predominantly boxing questions. But if you want to talk about music, other sports, uh, romance, <laughs> history, politics, whatever, um, no boundaries. Go to Twitter and type in your question via hashtag ask Rob Silva. That's. Hashtag A-S-K-R-O-B-S-I-L-V-A. All right, let's get to the first question. We've got several questions here. Now, I've got two Twitter accounts. so I realize that my questions, for some reason, bounce around both accounts. It doesn't stick to... Even though you put hashtag AskRobSilver, you should be able to see that question on any account. But for some reason, some questions go to my... Legends of Sports and Music account. Some go to my Hitman Chronicles Twitter account. So I'm going to alternate. This week I'll take the questions on my Legends of Sports and Music account. Next week I will deal with the Hitman Chronicles uh, account. All right. First question, and it's more of a comment. I'm gonna I'm gonna put up the entire uh, uh, thread. Um. Here we go. This is from um, W.S.B. Remy. He he wrote, I wish I knew enough people that were soprano heads like me so we could have a soprano space. I responded by saying there are a whole bunch of uh, soprano fans on here. And I talked I told uh, Remy that. The Sopranos are my Mount Rushmore of TV dramas. And real quick, ladies and gentlemen, let me go over my Mount Rushmore of TV dramas in no particular order. These, to me, are the four greatest TV dramas of all time, in my opinion. The Sopranos, The Wire, Breaking Bad, and Snowfall. Okay. And so uh, I I told Remy... That, uh, I was going to encourage people on my podcast, on this episode, to, uh, follow him so we can get a community going. He, um, Remy wants to start a Sopranos community through his, uh, account, and Remy wants to host the spaces in which people talk about, uh, the Sopranos, the greatness of Sopranos, man, and, uh, my man, uh, James Gandolfini, It's one of the two or three greatest roles in the history of television. He was just phenomenal as Tony Soprano. Um, the woman that played his month's mother, Nancy Marchand, she was phenomenal as his mom. One of the greatest acting performances by any woman I've ever seen in the history of television. Unfortunately, she died in between seasons two and three, so you only got to see her greatness for two seasons. But the dynamic between Mama Soprano and Tony Soprano was must-see TV. So those of you out there, and I doubt if there are too many out there, um, Sopranos is one of the most highly-rated TV shows of all time, one of the most binge-watched TV shows of all time. If you haven't watched Sopranos, go ahead and watch it. And if you want to uh, get this Sopranos community started, that Remy wants to wants to start and he'll do spaces. Remy does spaces all the time on Twitter. A great boxing fan. A young man who loves to follow the history of boxing. He just doesn't follow today's boxes or a certain boxer like a lot of young boxing fans do. He studies the history of the sport. Um follow him on Twitter, W S B R E M Y. He's also known as Bucks are plenty, but WSB Remy, WSB R-E-M-Y, if you want to follow him and not only talk about boxing, but most important, try and get that Sopranos community started with him. All right, thanks again, big man. Next question is from my man from Houston, Texas, TZ Hero, Lone Star Legend. Now, I blocked the account that he, uh, quote, tweeted to me, but... I know the question. Um, fuck this boxing history account. I blocked the mo- that motherfucker. Dude knows nothing about boxing history. He'll throw up a random tweet, and then I'll respond by talking about something he missed on that tweet or historical importance, because that dude don't know shit about history of boxing. He just puts his name there, and he goes, I guess he Googles uh, uh, th- this damn boxing, and he throws up there, and then he th- throws these, bullshit hypothetical matchups and one of them was Joe Frazier versus Mike Tyson and um TZ Hero uh hit me hit me uh tagged me on that tweet and right after this I blocked that uh horrible uh account boxing history cuz you really want to know about boxing history fuck these twitter accounts the number one boxing historian on the planet is the OG Rob Silver? I've been watching boxing since 1977. My father, from 1977 to 2000, had me under the learning tree. Anytime we attended a fight, anytime we watched a fight on television, so my knowledge is my years of watching boxing plus whatever my father taught me. And my father taught me more than all these clown ass clown ass accounts put together. All right, I told uh, Lone Star, I don't do hypothetical matchups. I will talk about who I feel was a greater fighter on this week's podcast. And Joe Frazier versus Mike Tyson, who was the greater fighter. Now, between 1986 and 1988, Mike Tyson was the greatest fighter at the, in the heavyweight division as I've ever seen. He was, in, he was unstoppable. He was knocking dudes out left and right. He bobbed and weave, he went to the body, he had a very underrated left jab, he, 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 he had a leaping left hook. He was very similar to Joe Frazier when Joe Frazier was heavyweight champion of the world from 1968 uh, until he lost his title in early 1973 to uh, George Foreman. Very similar heavyweight range except one thing. Joe Frazier beat Muhammad Ali. There's nobody on Mike Tyson's resume on that level. Now you're gonna say, oh, well, he knocked out two Hall of Famers in Larry Holmes and Michael Spinks. Larry Holmes was coming off a three-year layoff, and also Larry Holmes was past. Actually, Holmes was coming off a two-year layoff, and Holmes was past his prime. Mike uh Michael Spinks was a uh was a light heavyweight in his prime. You know, you know, he he put on a lot of pounds, and while he Won some um, big fights. He beat Holmes twice, even though the second fight I thought Holmes won. Uh, He beat up an overrated Jerry Cooney, who was never that great. I mean, get the fuck out of here. Um, But he was, he was, (laughs) it was a mismatch when Mike Tyson knocked out Michael Spinks. Michael Spinks was one foot into retirement. Michael Spinks took that $15 million and has lived a a comfortable life ever since because he never fought again. All the fighters Mike Tyson beat combined do not add up to the greatness of Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, when Joe Frazier beat Muhammad Ali on March 8th, 1971, a fight that I covered extensively through my father's eyes on this platform. You go check it out, The Life and Times of Muhammad Ali, the fight versus Joe Frazier, March 8th, 1971. I gave a complete historical overview of that uh, fight, of that event, Of both men's careers. Ali and Frazier. When Joe Frazier beat Muhammad Ali on March 8th, 1971. They were the two best fighters in the world. I'll give you that Mike Tyson was the best fighter in the world. Between 1986 and 1988. I'm not going to argue that. When he was heavyweight champion of the world. But he never fought a guy on his level. Or better than him. Um, Ali historically was a better fighter than Frazier. Frazier beat Ali in... One of the three greatest fights in the history of boxing. So I will give Joe Frazier the slight edge as the greater fighter. TZ hero. I don't do hypothetical matchups. I don't match up fighters from today versus fighters from yesterday. To me, that's a waste of time. And people argue on Twitter all day about bullshit like that. No. I deal with your error and your error only. So a th- great, great question again, big man. My man Half Pints got a couple of questions. Some clown ass, I don't know if this guy was a media member or I don't know if this guy was a, I think this guy was a media member. I blocked this stupid motherfucker who claimed to say that Shohei Otani was the greatest free uh, signing in Dodgers history. Half Pine goes and asks me, dare I ask a question or should I let you expand on why Jackie Robinson is the greatest signing in Dodger history Bar none, take no substitute in half pint. You're right, it's not even close. Shohei Itani got $700 million, damn near a billion dollars to sign with the Dodgers. How's that the most important signing in Dodger history? Don't make any sense. The Dodgers overpaid to get a guy who's chronically injured, and he will never amount to how much he's making. I don't care how much money was deferred to the back end of that contract. Shohei Ohtani will probably never pitch again, all right? They call him the Japanese Babe Ruth. Look, Shone, Shoei Ohtani's a special player, two-time MVP. I mean, he was an all-star pitcher and one of the best hitters in the sport. But in my opinion, his greatness is overrated. Now, he's a great player. When it's all said and done, he's going to the Hall of Fame. I can't put him in my top five greatest players of all time that a lot of people are claiming. Oh, because he could pitch and hit. The man has missed a lot of games in his career. And if you look at his batting average, his batting average doesn't compare to the greats like a Barry Bonds, like a Ken Griffey Jr. in their prime. He was never a 370 hitter, he was never a 350 hitter. Today, you have a lot of players. The majority, probably over 80 to maybe even more, 90% of the players in the league last year hit under 300. And they hit low 240, 250. I used to be a Mets fan. Pete Alfonso hit an abysmal 220, 230 last year while hitting a bucket full of home runs and striking out a lot. I don't want to hear it. Shohei Otani, yes, he's a great slugger. He's a great RBI guy. Uh, great run producer, and he was a great pitcher because I don't think he's ever going to pitch again. He might be relegated to a DH. The, <laughs> the jury will be out on how big of a signing this will be for the Dodgers. In my opinion, they need Otani. He's not going to really help their pitching staff because it's highly doubtful that he may ever pitch again. And that offense is phenomenal. I look, don't get me started. The greatest signing in the history of the, of the Dodgers organization was Jackie Robinson. It broke the color barrier, and then in came an influx of great black baseball players that renovated the sport, that brought the sport to another level. Because pre Jackie Robinson, I know people on here talk, "Oh, Babe Ruth was the greatest baseball player of all time." <laughs> He didn't play against other black players. I I don't consider Babe Ruth the greatest baseball player ever played because he was playing against all white players. There was no black players up against Babe Ruth. Man, get the fuck out of here! Now Babe Ruth, special ball player. All right. Now I wasn't alive to see him, but his numbers don't lie. But it was against one particular race. There was no, uh, there was no black Hispanics. There was no black Americans. Period. It was. Major League Baseball was the Wasp Baseball League. All right. Uh, Half Pint, you're right. Jackie Robinson, by far the greatest signing in Dodgers history. Nobody comes close. Another question by uh, Half Pint. Watching Godfather 2 and it makes me wonder, does Lee Strasburg have an equal in our generation? Don't you might have an answer. If you're talking about acting coaches, Lee Strasberg is considered the greatest acting coach in the history of motion pictures, in the history of uh, any type of acting period, Broadway, television, the big screen, the movie screen, whatever you want to call it. Strasberg was, was the acting coaches for Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. Two of my four greatest actors of all time. All right. No, there's nobody today on Lee Strasberg's level as an acting coach, period, end of story. Unless uh, Denzel, when he retires, finally decides to become an acting coach, I think he will be a phenomenal acting coach, but, you know, that's another story for another day. Thanks again, uh, big man, for two great questions. All right, let me scroll down. Let me scroll down. Let me scroll down. Oh, my man Kamani, Kamani, who's a, a freak who contributor to my Legends of Sports and Music, Sports and Music History podcast. And by the way, I've got one that just came out: Legends of Sports and Music. On any, on what, whatever platform you're listening to this podcast, that podcast is available. I just put out a Christmas tribute podcast in which several listeners. Um, matter of fact, I'll put the link in the description of this podcast. Uh, several listeners gave us their Christmas memories, and I gave three Christmas memories while I played over 20 of the greatest uh, Christmas songs of all time. And my musical tribute to Janet Jackson, the greatness of Janet Jackson, the blueprint for so many great performers like a Ciara and Beyonce, Aaliyah, et cetera. Okay, Kamani asked, he compared the two uh, separate dynasties that the Bulls had. He asked, 91 to 93 versus 96 to 98. For the ones that were there and witnessed both teams, which dynasty Bulls team that you enjoy the most? Um, This is an easy question for me to answer. I enjoyed the first dynasty, the 91 to 93 dynasty, Kamani, because you had Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan in their prime. Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player I've ever seen. Scottie Pippen is either the second or third greatest defensive player I've ever seen. Um, Hakeem Olajuwon's number one. Um, It's between Dikembe Mutombo and Scottie Pippen for number two. You had a young Horace Grant who was a phenomenal defender, rebounder, and enforcer for that Bulls team. You had great uh, scorers coming off the bench that could hit the three, great shooters coming off the bench that could hit hit the three like a B.J. Armstrong. Uh, and then you had a, a great grizzled veteran that gave you six vol- fouls and would give Patrick Ewing hell by body him, uh, trying to bully him, pushing him out the way in Bill Cartwright. And, of course, you had the great Phil Jackson, who coached both dynasties, but this was Phil at his young, hungry best. 91 to 93 Bulls team, I enjoyed more. Like like the 96 to 98 Bulls team, it was an older, wiser Michael Jordan. It was an older, wiser Scottie Pippen. It was oh. When it comes to greatest defensive players of all time, they had Dennis Rodman, and you got to put Rodman in the list that I just mentioned alongside. Hakeem's number one, but if you want to go number two, it's between Mutombo, Rodman, and Pippen. I would give Pippen a slight uh, uh, advantage, but Rodman was a phenomenal rebounder and a great defender. Rodman would guard anybody. Um, So that 96-98 to 98 Bulls team with the three... Headed monster of, of course, Jordan and the great defenders of Pippen and Robin. And you had a great defender, Ron Harper, who was a phenomenal defender. And you had a a, a great uh, role player in Tony Kukoc who could hit great outside shots and was a great passer on his own. Um, I'm going to go with the 91-93 team, but both teams were special. But I just loved that 91-93 team. You also had Paxson on that 91-93 and 93 team who in my opinion, was a better player than Steve Kerr, who filled that same role between 96 to 98 on the uh, Chicago Bulls. The main dynamics for both teams, of course, was uh, one of the greatest coaches in basketball history in Phil Jackson, the greatest basketball player I've ever seen in Michael Jordan, and uh, one of the two or three greatest defensive players of all time in Scottie Pippen, and Horace Grant played his role to a T. Just like Dennis Rodman, when he wasn't beating up officials and and walking out on the team, played his role between 96 to 98. A great question, Kamani. Uh, Hope uh, I gave you a a great rundown and a thorough explanation of my answer. Okay, let me keep going down. Let me keep going down. Let me keep going down. A a lot of these questions I answered on prior podcasts. Okay. Uh, there's a question uh, submitted by Jesus Salas that uh, he gave me damn near over a month. Yeah, over a month ago, I want to get to. Yeah, yeah. I'm finally getting to this question that Jesus posted on November 17th. Um, it was on Sid Vicious's birthday, the great Sid Vicious. And I'm not talking about the rock and roller, I'm talking about the man who rules the world. How do you feel about Sid winning the world title back in 1996? And how do you explain the crowd went pro-Sid? In in 1996, You didn't see that often. It's Shawn Michaels, I know, but still. Oh, it wasn't um, Sid's birthday, November 17th. It was the day that Sid Vicious beat Shawn Michaels to win the WWF title at the 1996 Survivor Series in Madison Square Garden. I could have went to that. A show. I decided not to buy tickets I wish I would have went now Because Sid Vicious Came out to a thunderous ovation And when he beat Sid As you heard on the pay-per-view that night And you could go watch this match On Peacock The WWE Network portion of Peacock I'm not sure if this match is available on YouTube I'm sure the ending is The crowd went apeshit In my opinion The WWF back then dropped the ball On Sid Vicious Because they gave Shawn Michaels a title right back a few months later at the Royal Rumble, in Sid Vicious' hometown—I mean, in Shawn Michaels' hometown of San San Antonio, Texas—I think they should have went with Sid, and I think the main event at WrestleMania that following year should have been Sid versus Bret. Shawn Michaels did not draw as a world champion in 1996; he was a horrible draw. Sid reinvigorated. The WWF, because he was this heel that the fans loved, and he was a precursor to Stone Cold. I would have loved to have seen a Sid Vicious Bret Hart feud play out longer than it did. And Sid wound up defending the title at WrestleMania versus The Undertaker in a horrible match. I think it should have been Sid versus Bret at WrestleMania, and then you could have had Bret versus, well, Brett versus. Shawn or Stone Cold at King of the Rings or SummerSlam. You could have kept it going. Uh, they gave the belt back to Shawn Michaels too quick, and then Shawn Michaels gave it away a few weeks later when he refused the job to Bret Hart. Um, love uh, Sid Vicious, a.k.a. Sid Justice, a.k.a. Psycho Sid. He belongs in the WWE Hall of Fame, and I hope that Triple H has him as one of the inductees in this Upcoming Philadelphia WrestleMania Weekend Hall of Fame? Great question. Again, great question uh, to uh, everybody. Let me see if I answered this question. Uh, Let me see if I answered this question. Yeah, uh, I answered that question. There was a question that a a friend of mine uh, asked, and I, I answered that question. All right, ladies and gentlemen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, now on to my historical overview of the recent inductee into the, not inductee, recently voted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame, Michael Mora. You know, I'm kind of uh, on the fence about Michael Mora being voted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame. I understand why he was and you know most heavyweights that most heavyweights in the history of the sport that won and had a moderate amount of success has been inducted into the international boxing hall of fame you see a lot of guys in there that are questionable like a ingemar johansson questionable there are a lot of heavyweight champions that didn't reign long that are in the International Box Hall of Fame. So if you compare Michael Mora to uh, Ingemar Johansson, yeah, he belongs in the International Box Hall of Fame. But if I had a vote, I would have never voted him in. But you know what? Congratulations to Michael Mora, despite my reservations. And I don't have a vote, you know. Uh, that's one of the biggest crimes. I don't have a vote, right? But you know what? Fuck them. But uh, congratulations to Michael Mora, who I always felt, I always liked as an individual. I always thought he was a gentleman. Uh, He was always very respectful of his opponents, soft-spoken, the whole nine. Um, Let's talk about his career. Now, once again, I'm going to uh, uh, shoot down this bullshit four-belt era. Um, But before we start that, Michael Mora grew up in Pennsylvania, was a star football player. He played both ends of the field for his high school team. He was a linebacker and a tight end. And then at the age of 17 slash 18, after he graduated from high school, he moved to Detroit to begin his boxing career under the tutelage of Emmanuel Stewart. And after two years as an amateur, he turned pro at the age of 20 and won his first 28 fights in which he was destroying one fighter after another. Um, actually, he won his first 21 fights. He won his first. No, my bad. Let me backtrack. He won his first eleven fights under the tutelage of Emmanuel Stewart, and then on December third, nineteen eighty-eight, he won the he won the bogus WBO Light Heavyweight Championship by beating a stiff named Ramzi Hassan. The WBO title didn't mean shit back in 1988. This four-belt era bullshit. Alright, he defended that title uh, I believe nine times. Before giving it up, he moved to heavyweight, and in his 29th fight, he beat Burt Cooper. Burt Cooper? Come on, are you fucking kidding me? He beat Burt Cooper on May 15th, 1992 in a must-see fight. This was a war. He beat Burt Cooper May 15th, 1992 to win the vacant, bogus WBO heavyweight title. A title that meant nothing to nobody. Nobody gave a fuck about the WBO title, ladies and gentlemen. This four belt era that the media and the networks try to feed you. It's bogus. It's a myth. But you go, you guys go ahead and and, and run with it. Nobody gave a fuck about the WBO heavyweight title. Uh, Burke Cooper uh thought so much of it that he gave it away. He gave it up as soon as he won it, just like. My uh Riddick Bowe would do a few years later. Get that bullshit the fuck out of here. Anyway, he gave up the title right away, and then finally, after beating um uh, several stiffs, including um a washed up James Bonecrusher Smith, it took Michael Moore ten rounds to beat this washed up old man. He would get a title shot on April twenty second, nineteen ninety four, against the lineal. Heavyweight champion of the world, Evander Holyfield. The man who beat the man who beat the man. That WBL title meant nothing. Evander Holyfield beat Riddick Bowe, who had beaten Evander Holyfield, who had beaten Buster Douglas, who had beaten Mike Tyson, the lineal heavyweight champion. And on April 22, 1994, I remember watching this fight. Didn't watch it with my pops that day. Uh, I watched it with a bunch of friends in Jackson Heights, uh, Queens, at a friend of at a, at a at a college uh classmates uh apartment and there was four of us sat back and we watched Michael Moore put on the performance of the lifetime as he outboxed Evander Holyfield. Uh, Evander Holyfield claimed he was uh, he was having a heart attack during the middle of that fight, which is bullshit because if he was having a heart attack, ladies and gentlemen, he would have collapsed in the ring. To me, that was just an excuse Holyfield brought up because he lost. Michael Mora thoroughly outpointed um, Holyfield. And Michael Mora became one of the first softball heavyweight champions in the history of the sport. And he dominated Holyfield in that fight with his right jab. And it was a great job done by Teddy Atlas to motivate Mora. Because there was spurts during the fight in which Mora was letting Holyfield back in the fight. And Teddy Atlas was getting on his ass. Unfortunately, that title reign only lasted a little bit over six months because on November 5th, 1994, Michael Moore, after battering George Foreman for for nine and a half rounds, midway through the 10th round, got caught with a spectacular right cross. He couldn't get up. George Foreman, at the age of 45, with one of the most incredible comebacks in boxing history as the oldest heavyweight champion of all time. And, you know, um, I don't know if Michael Moore ever recovered from that loss. He was supposed to fight in a rematch versus George Foreman. They were supposed to fight in uh, March of 1996, but Foreman pulled out of that fight. So Foreman was stripped of his IBF title and. Michael Mora, in a tough fight, beat Axel Schultz, the man who had gotten robbed against George Foreman previously. Uh, He beat Axel Schultz by split decision to regain the IBF heavyweight title, Michael Mora. Uh, Then he beat up an overrated Francois Botha. Then he barely beat a very bad contender in Vaughn Bean before losing his IBF title in a unification fight. First, the then WBA champion Van der Holyfield on November 8th, 1997. Holyfield totally dominated Mora, wiped the mat with him. And for all intents and purposes, that should have been the end of Michael Mora's career. He fought several years after that. He lost the, the, the title in 1997, and he would fight another 11 years before finally retiring at the age of 40 in February of, of 2008. Um he was never really uh, a a serious contender for the heavyweight title after losing the whole of field. Uh, he got knocked out by David Tua in 30 seconds on August 17, 2002. And I thought he should have retired then. You know what? He came back. He had like 10 or 11 more fights and he only lost one more time after getting knocked out in the first round by David Tua. Uh, Michael Moore retired with a very, very excellent record of 52 wins, four losses, one draw, and 40 knockouts. Um, he had a very good career. He had an excellent career. I'll give him that. Hall of Fame career, I'm not sure about, but you know what? Despite my reservations, I, I, I'll, give, I'll give it to him. Congratulations to Michael Moore for becoming a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And in June he will be inducted. Alongside Yvonne Calderon. Ricky Hatton and Diego Corrales. Ladies and gentlemen. I've already done a historical overview. Of Yvonne Calderon's career. Next week my historical overview. Will be on the hitman. Ricky Hatton's career. So uh, ladies and gentlemen. Real quick. The next podcast. Here on the Hitman Chronicles. The next episode. Will be in a few days as we recap the Nioa Inoue Marlon Topolis undisputed 122-pound fight. The winner becomes the undisputed 122-pound fighter. And that will be in conjunction with my first annual Hitman Chronicles Boxing Award show. Um, I will give you my fighter of the year, fight of the year, round of the year, knockout of the year, Comeback fighter of the year, etc. And I'll have a couple of contributors, I think, believe three contributors, chime in with voice notes on who they thought were their fighter of the year and the fight of the year. So until next time when we talk Niowa Noe versus Marlon Topolis, and I give my first annual award show and my awards to uh, those fighters and fights, I want everybody out there to always... Be blessed, be a blessing, and Merry Christmas. As the next time you hear me will be after the Christmas holiday.